0: It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. I've been meditating quite a bit on Psalm 130 as of late. Let me just read you verses 5 through 7. It says, I wait for the Lord with bated breath. I wait. I long for his word. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Let Israel wait for the Lord, for mercy is found with the Lord. With him is great redemption. I don't know about you, but that is such an incredible passage and yet rather convicting. Do I actually wait for the Lord with bated breath? Do I long for his word like that? And do I wait or hope in the Lord, realizing that his mercy is found in him and with him is great redemption. And that idea of with him is great redemption because he is a merciful God is really the heart of the message today. Now, before we jump into the message, I just want to encourage you to check out our Ellerslie online program for the summer. So in about 30 minutes a day, you can walk through these five weeks of powerful training to really grow in your love for Jesus Christ, the depth of your understanding of God's word, and really press into him in a very intentional way this summer. Well, it all starts June 15th, and registration is open until June 30th. So please don't delay. And for more information about the whole Ellerslie online program for the summer, please go to ellerslie.com and find more information there on the homepage. Well, again, I'm really excited about today's message. If you have your Bibles, we'll be in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, as we look at this idea that God is full of mercy and with him is great redemption. How we're kind of been walking through this new section in Ephesians chapter 2, been rather excited about walking this through with you. Uh, just as a reminder of overarching context, uh, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19, Paul is talking about the fact that he's praying that you would know the overwhelming power of God that is working. Now, he gives two illustrations. We walk through the first one, which is Jesus, and that goes from verse 20 down to verse 23. And so Paul is talking about the fact that here is this overwhelming power of God, and it is working in the life of Jesus. Now, he comes thundering into chapter 2, and he begins to talk about the second illustration or the demonstration of the power of God, and he talks about you. And uh, what I want to do is just kind of read, starting in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, and read down to verse 5 or 6 or so. Uh, This is what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which, in which you once walked according to the course of the world and according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit, that now works in the sons of disobedience. Among them we also once lived in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in sins, he made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. Oh, isn't that awesome? Uh, over the last couple of sessions, we were looking at Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, and we were walking through what Paul describes as our former way of living. Now, just to get to where we're going this morning, which is in verse 4, looking at this idea of the but God, uh, I really feel like it's significant or important for us to walk through those first three verses again just for the, the sake of context, for the sake of understanding what Paul is saying uh, to, to us in terms of how we used to live in the flesh. So again, I, I don't want to belabor this and I don't want to just keep dwelling on the, on the destitute and the depressing reality of death and darkness and, and how we used to live outside of Christ. But again, I think it's really important to understand the significance of verse 4. So again, in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul begins by talking about the fact that in our former way of living, the, hey, the way that you used to live outside of Jesus, hey, before you came to Christ, this is what you looked like. And he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And again, we're not talking physically death, right? We're talking spiritual death. And Paul says, do you realize that outside of Jesus, you were dead, That there there is no spiritual, there's no life, anything in the spirit. You're just, you are spiritually dead. In fact, you are dead in trespasses and sins. Hey, you've been living in rebellion. Hey, you've been living in selfishness. Hey, you've been doing what you want, when you want, how you want. Hey, this is all about me, 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 me. Hey, your whole life has been centered upon you. And what are you doing? You're literally pushing God aside. And you're saying, God, I'm going to do what I want to do. And I'm living in trespasses and sins. Now, in verses 2 and 3, Paul begins to flesh that out a little bit more, and he says in verse 2 that you once walked or lived according to the course of the world, that you literally took your life and you bit your life under the authority and the thought process of the world, and how the world lives, and how the world thinks, and, and what the world defines as success, and what the world seems as popular, and hey, you, you've lived under that authority, so, hey, you, you, you looked like the world, you acted like the world, you talked like the world, you, you watched what the world watched, hey, you pursued that, what the, what the world pursues. Your whole life was wrapped up in the thought process and the way of living according to the world. Now, you realize that as a Christian, you are not to live that way, <clears throat> that, that the world has set itself up against God, and if I'm a Christian, I am to not live like that that I'm to live as a Christian, which means, in fact, biblically you're called a saint, which means someone who has been set apart and different other than the world. So I cannot live with the mentality of the world wrapped up in the things of the world and call myself a Christian. I cannot dabble in two kingdoms. I, I cannot straddle a fence. I cannot live in light and darkness at the same time. And yes, there is that sanctification process, and God is so faithful to remove those shadow areas of our life, but you realize that I, I cannot purposely choose to live in two kingdoms at the same time. Uh, 1 John, uh, John in, in, in his epistle, 1 John chapter 2, is really, really intense about this idea. He says, hey, do not love the world or the things in the world. And again, we're not talking about nature. We're not talking about creation kind of stuff, right? God made the world. He called it good. We're not not talking about that. We're talking about the the mentality, the foolishness, the philosophy, the, the mentality of the world. And John says, hey, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him, See, I, I cannot say, oh, I'm going to love the world, the philosophy of the world. I'm going to live according to the counsel of the world. Oh, and I'm, I'm going to live according to the counsel of God. Because those two realities are at enmity. They're at war with one another. And I, I cannot, cannot straddle, or straddle Sorry, that, that fence. That I'm either going to be in the kingdom of light or I'm going to be filled with the kingdom of darkness. And Paul says, you know how you lived outside of Jesus you lived according to the mentality of the world. He goes on in verse 2, and he says that you were living according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. And I was trying to emphasize this idea. It's not that you're possessed by Satan or, or even possessed by a demon. It's, it's, the, it's that same character that, the, that characterizes the demonic. When I live according to the course of the world, I'm really putting myself under the authority of the same character that that energizes the demonic it's that same twisted spirit that that produces these what paul calls the sons of disobedience that there is a spirit of the world there's a spirit that that is demonic again it's not that you're filled with a demon it's just that same mentality that energizes the demonic, it's that same rebellion, it's that same twistedness, twistedness, it's that same selfishness, it's that same, hey, look out for myself and don't care about the people around me. That same character has now been influencing you and now you are a son of disobedience. See, as a Christian, I'm not to come under the character of the demonic. I'm not to be under the authority of that which influences the world. I'm, un- I'm to be under the authority and the character of God. That if you look at my life, what should you see? You should see God. That you should see the character of God just coming, just flowing out of my life. That if you look at my life and you see the character of the world, you realize that that says something about me. And as a Christian, I am not to look like the world. I am to look like Jesus. And Paul says, you know what you were like before you came to Christ? See, you were under the authority of the world. You are under the authority of the demonic You're you're characterized by that same rebellion, selfishness, attitude that works, that energizes the sons of disobedience. And then he moves into verse 3, and he says, among them you also once lived in the lusts of your flesh. And again, it's fascinating that that whole idea of living under the lusts of your flesh, uh, the the tone in Scripture, or the, the idea Is like you're thrown into a washing machine and you're just being tumbled over and over and over. And it's not like, hey, I don't even want to be living in the lust of the flesh, but I just, I can't help myself. I just got to do it. And so, you know, what, and again, lust here doesn't necessarily even mean sexual, even though it could be, right? The lust of the flesh is just anything that you're craving of the flesh, Right, I mean, it could be drugs, it could be sex, it could be alcohol, but but hey, it could be success, it could be money, it could be whatever, right? Popularity, esteem, whatever. And hey, when, when I'm going after that stuff, it, it's see what what Paul is saying. Again, I just find it fascinating. It's like I have no control. It's like I'm pacing back and forth and I'm just, I just I've got to participate. I don't want to participate, but I have to participate. And, and, and all of the lust of the flesh is acting upon me and I just can't help myself. I just got to do it. That, that, that's, that's the emphasis in the passage. But he goes on and he says, if that wasn't bad enough, that I was also doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and the word for doing is that is that word poieo, which is, means I'm creatively producing this out of myself. So while the earlier one was that that the lusts of the flesh were acting upon me, and and whether I wanted to or not, it's just I just I had to do it. I just I didn't even want to do it, but I just I just had to do it. Paul says, you know what you're doing now? See, you are creative in your way of sinning. See, you are coming up with ways of sinning. You just just delight in sinning. You're just excited about sinning. And so it's not just you're being acted upon. You are creating ways to sin because your sin nature is producing this junk in your life. And Paul says, because of all of that, we were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. Do you realize that the punishment for sin is death? Paul says in Romans, the wages of sin is death. And you know what a wage is, right? You go down to your job and you, and you work and you go up to your employer and say, hey, I need my wage. <laughs> you know? I did my work, pay me, right? What's my wage? That there is something that comes from working. What is it? It's a wage. And what is the wage of sin? See, when you participate in sin, there is a payment to the sin, And what's the payment of sin? Death. And whether you want the death or not, that doesn't matter. You are going to be paid death when you participate in sin. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. So you come to the end of verse three in the passage, and it is depressing. So for three whole verses, Paul is talking about the fact of hey, when you hey, when you look at your life before Jesus, do you know what your life before Christ looks like? It is dark, it is depressing. It's death. That I've been wrapped up in myself. I'm under the influence of the world. And I'm characterized by this attitude of rebellion and sin. And I've been doing what I want, when I want, how I want. And I'm just... And yeah, there may be a pleasure in it for a season. But the end of all that is emptiness. The end of all of that is just death. It's just... eh. Now, what hope do we have? There is none outside of Jesus. And isn't it marvelous? Again, we're talking about the overwhelming power of God. You realize that when you begin to understand what God has done in your life, it becomes an incredible picture of his power. I read this a couple of weeks ago, but D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way. He said, if you want to know the greatness of God's power, You've got to realize the depth of sin. You've got to realize the problem which confronted God. You've got to realize the problem that confronts you. See, God has a problem. See, what's his problem? His creation that is supposed to be identified by him, that is supposed to reflect him, is dead. That the ones who are supposed to be alive, the ones who are supposed to be proclaiming his glory and grandeur, hey, the ones who are supposed to be declaring his life are spiritually dead. And they are marked by sin and death. And as such, God has a problem on his hands. What's his problem? You. (laughs) Because you're spiritually dead. Hey, you have a problem on your hands. It's the fact that you're spiritually dead. But what an amazing reality or demonstration of God's power. Well, what did God do? He says this in verse 4 and 5, well, and verse 6. But verse 4 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. And then he raised us up and seated us together in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, verse six. Do you realize what God has done? Here you are in your your spiritual deadness and God reached into your spiritual deadness and yanked you from spiritual death and brought you into spiritual life. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but God's big agenda in your life is life. See, God is life See, outside of, outside of Jesus' death, see, he is light. Everything outside of him is darkness. And you realize what he has done is he has reached into your darkness. God has reached into your death so that he could bring about life and light in him, in you. That he wants to take his life and his light and deposit it within you through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But he has a problem. Again, there's full of deadness and darkness and sin. So he has to deal with the sin so that he can now come in and purify this vessel so he can inhabit that vessel to once again reflect his glory and grandeur as his original intent was back in the Garden of Eden. And, that, and then we see in Jesus. Isn't it an amazing thought that those two words in verse 4 but God, I keep saying this, but those two words, but God, may be two of the greatest words in all of Scripture because it sets up an incredibly beautiful contrast. See, on this side, you have death. On this side, you have darkness. You have this, this decrepit reality of, hey, I'm only destined for hell. There's only one place that I am to go. I, I cannot get out of this. And then there's this contrast, but God, hey, that which I could not do, hey, that which I could not accomplish for myself, hey, that which I could not bring about, which was life, do you know what God did? He produced it in me. And there's this incredible contrast. On, again, on this side, it's death, and over here is this side of life. And what did God do? He did everything for me. That he reached into my darkness. He reached into my death. He reached into my sin and my rebellion. I love what Romans 5.8 says. Again, it starts with that phrase, but God. But Romans 5.8 says, but God shows his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you realize what's taking place? Here I am. I'm shaking my fist in God's face. Here I am living in rebellion. Here I am doing what I want, how I want, when I want. Here, here I am living in selfishness and pride. And in the middle of that, as I'm, I am spitting in God's face, God says, I, I refuse to let you live that way. Hey, that, that, that you are, I, I need you. I want you. I just, I, I'm, just I, I'm I, I, I just, I gotta have you. So in the middle of my rebellion, God goes after me and he does everything that I need so that I can have life. Do you realize that's all over Scripture? So, so I mean, so powerful to me as you begin to walk through the Old Testament, you hear the hints of these things, right? You hear the hints that, that God has taken your sin and thrown your sin as far as the east is from the west, that he's taken your sin and it's, he's thrown it behind him so that he's not staring at your sin. He's taken your sin and he's thrown it into the depths of the sea, Right, that he's taken your sin and he's, he's removed that transgression. Why? So that he can have relationship and intimacy with you, so that he can fill you with his spirit and give you life. Now, that was all hinted at in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, this has become reality in Jesus Christ. And what you see Jesus doing then is, is he, he's walking and he's, of course, he's, he's, he's coming up to this and phenomenal climax where here he is, he's giving himself. God has given himself to us to die upon a cross so that he might redeem you and I. Again, we looked at this earlier in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. But Paul writes that one of the blessings that we have received in Jesus is that in him we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace that he has redeemed us and he has set us free and again the idea goes back to this this idea of ransom right he has paid there's this ransom on our life right we've been taken captive by sin and now we are being held hostage and it demands a payment and of course you know we check our pockets and we check our bank account and and we do not have what it takes to pay the payment So what did Jesus do? He paid the payment himself. And he lived a perfect, righteous life so that when he died, his death actually is able to cover my sin. And then he not only redeemed us, but he has forgiven us. And and again, that idea is that he is, here we are shackled. we, We are chained to sin. And he has come and he has broken those shackles and he has set us free. And isn't it amazing? Think about this that he didn't just deal with our sins, our deeds, our actions, right? That he, he didn't just forgive us of our sins. He actually came and dealt with the sin nature within us. And that is so phenomenal because when you begin to recognize that if all he ever did was deal with the sins, right, right the activities, the deeds, but I still had the nature, I'm going to keep producing more deeds and more sins, So, at the death of the cross, or or his death on the cross, it, it was a twofold reality that he was dealing with the sins, the deeds themselves, but he was also dealing with the sin nature. And that at the cross, he was dealing both with the nature and the deeds so that I could be forgiven and set free from the bondage of sin, so that he could actually come and indwell my life with his very spirit and again produce life. That's amazing. That is so good. Uh, You don't have to turn there, but a couple pages from over uh, in Colossians chapter 1, I I just, I've been so dumbfounded by this passage. I just, it's it's becoming one of my favorite passages of Paul because it just talks about this glorious reality. Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, Paul says, giving thanks to the Father, get this, who has qualified us to be partakers of of the inheritance of the saints of the light. Oh, now get this. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and has conveyed us, he has moved us, into the kingdom of, his, uh, uh, of the Son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Do you hear what Paul is saying? God has really taken us from this kingdom of darkness. He's really taken us from this position which has been we, we've been under this power of darkness thing. And he has brought us out. He has redeemed and he has forgiven us. He's set us over here. He's moved us into the kingdom of his dear son whom he loves. And now we are no longer, no longer under the authority and the influence of the power of darkness. We are now under the authority and the influence of the power of his son. Which is life. Because he is life. And here we were under the power of death and darkness. Now we are under the presence and the authority of light and love because that is Jesus. And we have been moved from the kingdom of death into the kingdom of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? And all of that, that whole concept, is found in those two little words. But God. Uh, If you have your Bibles, uh, flip over, uh, if you would, to uh, Matthew Uh, Matthew chapter 18. It's interesting, in Matthew 18, uh, Jesus is talking about uh, forgiveness. And he's he's dealing with the fact that we are to forgive the people around us. And it's incredible if you walk through it. He gives the parable of the lost sheep. He talks about the fact that someone sins against you. uh, You are to go and forgive them. He goes, excuse me, in uh, verse 21, 22. He talks about the fact that, hey, there is no limit to the forgiveness. So no matter how many times they ask for forgiveness, you keep forgiving. And then in verse 23, he gives this parable. Now, again, the whole parable in the context is forgiving one another. But there's this hint. I just want to give you the hint or or the the idea in there about God's forgiveness for you. Again, I'm not going to go through the whole thing. And, again, the whole context is, hey, The way that God has forgiven you is the same way you're to forgive the people around you. But but listen to how Jesus illustrates how God has forgiven you. Matthew 18, 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle the accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But since he was not able to pay, his master ordered that he be sold with his wife and their children and all that he had, and payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees, pleading with him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. Do you realize that God has done that in your life? That in Jesus, the king of all kings has said, I, I'm forgiving the debt that you owe me. It's interesting, the debt that this servant owed the king was 10000 talents. One talent was worth 15 years worth of human labor. So this (laughs) man—this is so mind-boggling—this one man owed the king a debt of 150,000 years of human labor. (laughs) That's a lot. And of course, this whole thing is hyperbole, right? Jesus is actually telling a joke. And uh, the servant falls on his feet and says, hey, have patience, have patience, I'll pay everything you realize that's impossible. You <laughs> know because hey, you might be able to pay off one lifetime, but you'll never be able to pay 150,000 years of human labor. I mean, you might you might, you know, might give 50, 60, 70 years maybe, but not 150,000. This thing is impossible. The, the, the debt that you and I have have caused because of sin is insurmountable. You realize that one sin, just one sin. I mean, you tell one lie, that one lie, is enough to send you to hell for eternity. And hey, if we were all honest, we have done a lot more than one lie. Hey, we've lied, we've cheated, we've been prideful, we've been greedy, we've lusted. I mean, hey, we've hated. We've, I mean, we, you start going through the list and we have done a lot of things multiple times that should send us to hell for eternity. The debt that, that we have upon our life because of sin, those wages of sin is insurmountable. That there is no way that you and I could ever repay 150,000 years of human labor. See, you and I have no ability to to pay off an eternity in hell of sin. For one sin. Let alone all the sins that we 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 have caused and done. But what has this graceful, merciful, compassionate king done? Verse 27 The master of the servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. If I can put that into two words, but God, do do you realize that here I am living in darkness and death and and the wages of all of the sin that I have caused is is, is eternity in hell. And what has God done? He's given me life. And in His overwhelming compassion, He has forgiven the debt. Uh, again, this is illustrated all over the place. Luke fifteen is a great picture of that. In Luke fifteen, Jesus gives three parables of God's aggressive nature going after a sinner. He he starts with hey God here's this here's a shepherd with a hundred sheep, and the shepherd with a hundred sheep loses one. The shepherd does not say, well, you know, it's only 1%. That's actually not that big of a deal. You know what? I'll leave the 1%. (laughs) No, what does the shepherd do? The shepherd leaves his sheep with somebody else. He aggressively goes after the sheep. He's willing to risk his own life in the desert wilderness. Here he is. He's, He's facing robbers. He's facing the animals. He's facing these ravines in Israel, right? He's going after the sheep. And when he finds the sheep, he puts it on upon his shoulders. He brings home, and they have a celebration. Why? Because the one Sheep matters. And Jesus says, likewise, this is Luke 15, verse 7. Likewise, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repent, repents than over 99 righteous men who need no repentance. Do you recognize that God's heart is one of seeking, searching, rescuing, redeeming, forgiving? And the one matters. You matter. And then he tells a story. It goes from a 100 sheep down to 10 coins. And here's this woman who has 10 coins, and she loses one, and she doesn't go, you know what, that's <laughs> only one coin. Not a, not a big deal. No, she, she searches the house, and, and of course you know their, their, their ground was usually dirt, or they had some wood slats. And, and so she is, she's uncovering everything, and she's lighting all the candles so that she can do a diligent search. And when she finds the lost coin, she gathers the community together and she says, hey, I found my coin. There is, Hey, I, I have salvation, redemption again. And, and again, in verse 10, likewise they tell you there is joy in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. So it goes from a hundred sheep down to ten coins down to this one son. And Jesus says, you know there's a son who shook his face in rebellion to the father and says, father, I just wish you were dead. I want my inheritance now. And so the father, and again, you know, they don't, it's not a cash society. I mean, they had coins, but it was mainly barter as a barter system. And so here's the father, and he, he has to liquidate some of his stuff and probably wasn't getting great deals with it. And so he sells some of his animals and property or whatever and, and gives the son his inheritance. And the, the son goes over to a neighboring country and squanders his money on just however he wants to live. It's, it's that living under the influence of the world mentality. Here is he took all that his father had given him, and he squandered it, and just in the destitution of the world, and finally, all the money runs out, and he just goes, "What was I thinking? Oh, even the servants of my dad are, are live better than I live, and I'm in, a, I'm in a pig trough, and man, I just I don't want to eat their food." So he kind of dusts himself off, and he starts walking walking back, and think about this: the father has been looking in the distance every day waiting for the return of his son. He's just you know rolling his hands and saying, oh, where's my son? Where's my son? Where's my son? And suddenly he sees this little dot on the horizon. And of course, in this culture, it would be shameful for a, for a man to, to show his legs. It's shameful for a man to run. But what, is, what does this father do? In overwhelming compassion and love for his son, the father gathers up his robe and ties it off and runs to his son and embraces his son and in mercy and forgiveness Restores the son to sonhood. The, the, here's the son willing to be the servant. And, and the son says, Father, I, I'm not worthy to be called your son. And the, and the father's like, Shush, <laughs> you know. And he puts the robe and the ring and the sandals upon his son, and they kill the fattened calf. And do you realize that's how God sees and feels about you? To see he is a God who is who wants to redeem. He's a God full of compassion. He's a God who just. See, he just cannot stand it when you live in sin. See, he is aggressively, the, the, the old, uh, there's this old poem, uh, oh, 100, 200 years ago, Talk about God being the hound of heaven. And God is racing after you, breathing down your neck. See, he's not going to just let you live in the junk of the world. See, he is aggressively trying to get your attention. He's aggressively trying to awaken you. Why? Because he does not want your life to be one of spiritual death. He wants your life to be one of life and redemption and forgiveness. He wants your life to be full of his very spirit so that your life would reflect him. Psalm 130, verse uh, 7. Listen to this. It says, Let Israel wait or hope in the Lord, for mercy is found with the Lord. With him is great redemption. Do you realize that with God, there is great redemption? And it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter the deed. It doesn't matter how tragic it has been. The answer is, but God. Do you realize it does not matter how dark your past has been? It doesn't matter how perverse it may have been. It doesn't matter how full of death and destruction it has been. The reality is, but God. See, it does not matter how long I've spent over here. God doesn't want me to remain over in death and darkness any longer. He wants to but God in my life and produce life and light. Here's a question for each of us. Have we fully experienced the but God in our life? Have we fully experienced the redemption and the forgiveness and the mercy and the love of our God? See, God so loved us that while we were yet sinners, while we were shaking our our fists in his face, while we were spitting at him saying, you know what, I want to do it my way, how I want it, when I want it. Hey, I want to live in rebellion and pride and selfishness. And hey, when I was dead in my trespasses and sins, Christ died for me. That he stepped in the middle of my death. He stepped in the middle of my wages. He stepped in the middle of my destruction. And but God brought about life. Again, listen to verse 4 and 5. But God, this is Ephesians 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. Have you fully experienced that? Maybe there are still shadow areas of your life that God needs to sanctify and redeem and set you free from? See, see what is keeping you shackled under the authority and the influence of the world? See, See, what habits and addictions do you keep returning to? See, what is it? What area of your life do you need God to step into the middle of and, but God, bring about life and redemption? See, God does not want, see, God is more interested in our holiness than he is in our happiness. And it's not that hey, in in Christ is the fullness of joy. So I'm not talking about being depressed. I'm not talking about being sad all the time. Get off that. What I am saying is, do you realize that God wants to make you holy because he wants to make you like himself? That he wants to deposit his life and his character within you so that he could demonstrate himself through you to the world around you. But God... See, what would happen in the middle of your family, in the middle of whatever it is that you're going through, in the middle of your circumstance, in the middle of your craziness, in the middle of your sin, in the middle of your addiction, in the middle of your habits, you could experience a but God in your life. See, what would happen if that thing you just kept turning to, see, what would happen if that same influence upon your life see what would happen if that same mentality that has always drawn you to the world see what if you could experience the but god in your life and he would begin to set you free from the power of darkness and bring you into the kingdom of his dear son where you would experience life you were dead in your trespasses and sins hey that's how we lived but god stepped in the middle of your death. And brought about life. For by grace you have been saved. Have you fully experienced that? My, my guess is, if we're all to be honest, there's something in each of our lives where we need to <clears throat> where we need, we need to experience the butt got in. And maybe it's our family, maybe it's some habit, maybe it's some addiction. Maybe it's the fact that we just turn to the world for entertainment and rest. Maybe it's we got wrapped up in the success that the world defines. Whatever it would be, would you allow the Holy Spirit to press and convict your life and then come in and bring about a but God where the reality of the gospel would become evident in you? That here you are living in darkness and death, children of wrath, destined for eternity in hell. That we would fully experience his forgiveness, his redemption, and his life. That if we are a Christian and and we are walking in the light, that that we would allow him to sanctify all those shadow areas of our life. That we would freshly, every day, experience the God in our life. That God, if if you don't step in today, God, if, if you don't, if you don't move in my circumstance, in my situation, and in my family, would you come and be the but God of my life? Because that is your heart. You are rich in mercy, and you have a great love with which you have loved us. And therefore, even when I'm living in sin and rebellion, you, hey, you've come and you've paid the cost to bring about redemption and forgiveness so that I can have life. Can we live in that reality of the but God every single day? I need that. I need that. Let's pray, Lord. Lord, it is so dumbfounding to me that that you didn't just flick us into the abyss. You didn't just leave us to our own devices. You you, you did not want the wages of sin to be paid that you were willing to come and live a perfect, sinless, righteous life so that when you died upon the cross, it would be effectual for me. That, Lord, you have indeed taken my sin and thrown it as far as the east is from the west. That you have taken my sin and thrown it into the depths of the sea. You have taken my sin and thrown it behind your back <clears throat> and you are not staring at my sin any longer. Lord, you are merciful and full of great love and while I was a sinner, you died for me so that I could experience your life, so that I could experience intimacy with you, so that I could actually have relationship with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So Lord, I just want to thank you for the but God in Scripture. Thank you that you are willing to step into darkness and damnation and death and bring about life and salvation. Lord, I do not deserve that. There's nothing I could do that would earn it. There's nothing I can do to get rid of it. Because this is just, this is you. And because of your great mercy and because of your love, you, you gave this gift to us, which is yourself, the fullness of salvation. Lord, I pray that if there is someone who is here or listening who has not experienced the but God in their life, that you would press them and let them realize the foolishness of the mentality of the world, that you'd allow them to realize the stupidity of living under the influence of of the world and and the demonic, and that they would experience you. Lord, I pray for those of us who are believers and and are in the light, I, I pray that you would bring conviction in any area of our life that's necessary, any shadow area of our soul that we need to experience the but God. Lord, I pray that our lives would reflect the grandness and greatness and glory of who you are. That here we are, have an insurmountable debt, and you and your compassion have forgiven us. Lord, if that is true, wouldn't we just, oh, wouldn't we walk around our life just humming and singing all day long? How could we get depressed if, if we realize the depth of your forgiveness See, see how how can we just get swayed by the junk of the world when we begin to realize that that, man, you have forgiven 150,000 years of human labor. That there's this insurmountable debt that there's no way we could ever pay and yet you in your mercy and grace have forgiven us. Lord, may we live in light of your forgiveness. May we live in light of your redemption. May we live in light of your life. And Lord, we thank you Oh, we thank you that you have transferred us from the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of your dear Son so that we could be filled with your life, your character, your, your light. Lord, may our lives reflect the reality and the truth that we are Christians and that we have experienced the but God in our lives. Love you, Jesus. Oh, you're so good. We just give you the praise and the glory in your precious, powerful name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. And our weekend service is streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings join us at live.ellersley.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellersley campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.